Section 3 of The Lives of the Queens of England, Volume 8, by Agnes and Elizabeth Strickland. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Henrietta Maria, Chapter 1, Part 3. The king's first admiration of his wife, in the course of a few months, assumed the feelings of deep and intense passion, full of disquietudes. He soon felt jealous of the influence of her French attendants over her. In all regal marriages, in whatever country they may take place, the native attendants of the bride are invariably dismissed in a few days, for they are always objects of suspicion either to the king or to his people. Assuredly, the marriage article stipulated for the retention of a greater number of native followers than had ever been previously permitted to remain in the household of a queen of England. The king knew it was against his agreement to remove the large colony the queen had brought with her, but he was not for that the less anxious to get rid of them, nor could his people hate them more intensely than he did. Among other grievances, was the toleration of the mass at Whitehall, where the queen claimed the right of her chapel or oratory for the celebration of the rites of her religion. This was granted with reluctance, and instead of a chapel according to the marriage articles, the most retired chamber in the palace was assigned for the purpose. The first mass that was celebrated in England since the winter of Queen Elizabeth's accession is thus described in the words of an angry newsletter. The queen, at eleven o'clock, came out of her chamber in a petticoat, and with a veil over her head, supported by the Count de Tellier, her chamberlain, followed by six of her women, and the mass was mumbled over her. Whilst they were at mass, the king gave orders that no Englishman or woman should come near the place. The priests have been very importunate to have the chapel finished at St. James's, but they find the king slow in doing that. His answer was, that if the queen's closet, where they now say mass, was not large enough, let them have it in the great chamber, and if the great chamber be not wide enough, they may use the garden, and if the garden were not spacious enough, to serve their turn, then was the park the fittest place. With all their stratagems, they cannot bring him to be the least in love with their fopperies. They say there came some English papists to hear the queen's mass on Sunday, but that she rebuked them and caused them to be driven out. The Queen of Charles I is known to all readers of history by the name of Henrietta Maria, but she was not called so by her husband or at her own court. The king chose to call her Mary, and when those in his household remonstrated with him that this name, owing to the Marian persecutions, had become very unpopular to English ears, he still persisted in calling his bride Mary, declaring that the land should find blessings connected with her name, which would counteract all previous evils. Most persons will agree with Charles in his tasteful appreciation of the name of Mary, but his feelings, as lover and poet, ought to have yielded to the good policy of the above suggestion, for popular prejudice is governed by a mere breath, and the slightest association of ideas will raise the fury of the multitude. Yes, history will prove Shakespeare's aphorism, that there is magic in a name, especially for the working of evil. The political agitators who give nicknames are guided by this aphorism. How many martyrs have not fallen victims to the ridiculous or ill-sounding epithets of Lollard, Papist, or Quaker? The influence of the French household over the mind of the queen became daily more intolerable to Charles, for she lived among them and thought and spoke according to their direction. He considered that they interfered between her heart and his, 
and that she never would become attached to him while they remained in England. Those feelings influenced his determination of dismissing the French household, which he had taken very early after his marriage. He notified this intention to the Duke of Buckingham, who was then at Paris as ambassador extraordinary, requiring him to break this matter to the Queen Mother, Marie de Medicis. King Charles to the Duke of Buckingham, Private, November 20th, 1625. Steeny, I write to you, by Ned Clark, that I thought I should have cause enough, in a short time, to put away the messieurs, either by their attempting to steal away my wife, or by making plots with my own subjects. For the first I cannot say certainly whether it was intended, but I am sure it is hindered. For the other, though I have good grounds to believe it, and am still hunting after it, yet seeing daily the maliciousness of the messieurs, by making and fomenting discontents in my wife, I could tarry no longer from advertising you that I mean to seek for no other grounds to cashier my messieurs, that you may, if you think good, advertise the Queen Mother, that is Marie de Medicis, of my intention. For this being an action which may have a show of harshness, I thought it was fit to take this way, that she, the Queen Mother, to whom I have had many obligations, may not take it unkindly. And likewise, I think I have done you no wrong in my letter, though in some place of it I may seem to chide you. I pray you, send me word, with what speed you may, whether ye like this course or not, for I shall put nothing of this in execution, while, or till, I hear from you. In the meantime, I shall think of the convenient means to do this business, with the best mean, but I am resolved it must be done, and that shortly. So longing to see thee, I rest, your loving, faithful, constant friend, Charles R. Hampton Court. This letter was accompanied with one meant to be shown to the mother of the young queen, commencing like the former with, Steeny, but written in a very sensible and reasonable style, which is not exactly the case with the first. For the idea that his wife would be stolen from him is more like a boy, jealous of the possession of a new plaything, than a king of the personal dignity of Charles. However, he was a young husband, passionately in love with his own wife, and he must be allowed his share in the excuses made for the irrationality of lovers in general. Buckingham assuredly communicated to the Queen Mother of France the King's last letter, and by that means broke to her the intention of dismissing the French household, since Henrietta afterwards gave him all the credit of that measure, and hated him as if he had been the author of it. Yet Charles found no excuse for cashiering his messieurs, as he calls them, till full six months after. Another letter to Steeny occurs soon after the foregoing, in which the king makes the following rather ungracious comment on the queen's conduct. As for news, my wife begins to mend her manners. I know not how long it will continue. They say she does so by advice. He was meantime seriously annoyed by the proceedings of Madame St. George, who, by virtue of her office as first lady of the bedchamber, insisted on a place in the queen's coach, even when the king was there. One day his majesty put her back with his own hand, as she was following the queen into the royal carriage. Likewise he prevented her from taking precedence of the English ladies of his queen's household, and this produced strife between the queen and himself, and sometimes between her and Madame St. George. It was, we may suppose, after one of these wrangles, that Henrietta Maria wrote the following familiar note to her friend. 
the queen to Madame St. George, no date of any kind. Mamangat, I pray you, excuse me if you have seen my little vertigo, which held me this morning. I cannot be right all of a sudden, but I will do all I can to content you meanwhile. I beg you will no longer be in wrath against me, who am and will be all my life, Mamangat, your affectionate friend, Henriette. The most serious cause of displeasure that Charles I had against the French domestics of his young wife was that they infused or strengthened her refusal to share his coronation. This piece of bigotry was at once most injurious to the king and of mischievous consequences to the queen herself, since it gave occasion for her enemies afterwards to affirm that she had never been recognized as the consort of Charles I. So dangerous is it to neglect or scorn the ancient institutions of a country while they continue to be reverenced by the great body of the people. Charles I was crowned in Westminster Abbey, solace, for no representations of his, nor the temptation of being admired of all beholders, and the belle de belles in so splendid a scene, could induce his young and lovely partner to share in it. She refused to conquer her religious prejudices sufficiently to be consecrated by the prelates of the Church of England. Henrietta presents the first instance of a Queen of England who refused to be crowned. This foolish obstinacy gave the death blow to her popularity in England, for her people never forgave the contempt she had manifested for their crown. She stood at the bay window over the portal of the gatehouse at Whitehall, where she had the view of the procession going and coming, and it was observed that her French ladies were all the time dancing and frisking in the room before her. The queen's absence from the coronation caused likewise the absence of the Count de Blainville, the French ambassador. He declared that he would have risked a small strain to his conscience, which forbade him to be present at the prayers of the English church, but it would be incongruous that he should be a spectator where the queen, his master's sister, not only refused her participation, but even her presence at the solemnity of crowning. Thus, in consequence of Henrietta's perverse bigotry, an affront both personal and national was offered to her husband by the representative of her brother, who ought to have been wiser than to have followed the lead of a spoiled, willful child. King Charles had endeavored to persuade his queen to be present in the abbey during his coronation, were it only in a lattice box, but she positively refused even that small concession. The coronation of Charles took place on February 2nd, being Candlemas Day, a high festival of the Roman Catholic Church, and it was kept as such by Henrietta and her French household, and this circumstance, doubtless, strengthened her aversion to be present at a ceremony with which the liturgy of the English church was connected. Had she attended her husband's coronation and listened to the oath imposed on him, she would have found that this ceremonial, which she loathed as Huguenot, obligated him to keep the Church of England in the same state as Edward the Confessor. The most liberal manner of construing this oath must have been that the English people required that whatsoever monarch they invested with the power of king and head of the church should use that power to keep the Church of England as near to the model of the Anglo-Saxon church as possible. The marriage of Charles with a Catholic queen naturally aggravated his difficulties, nor was Henrietta of an age and temper likely to afford him aid in steering dexterously between the adverse currents which beset his course. The Parliament believed the king spared twenty priests condemned to death through his wife's influence. 
Henrietta was assuredly unable to influence him in much smaller matters, and if the most thorough annoyance and vexation could have led a good man to have immolated every priest in England, in hopes of including his wife's domestic establishment of chaplains among them, Charles was angry enough at this crisis to have done so. Henrietta was so far from meeting with any extraordinary indulgence from her husband at this juncture, that his mind was wholly bent upon a step which he knew would overwhelm her with grief. He resolved to break that part of her marriage articles, which stipulated that her household and ecclesiastic establishment should be composed of people of her own country. The commencement of this contest is detailed by Charles himself in a letter to his brother-in-law, Louis Thirteenth, in justification of his proceedings. Henrietta had determined to grant the principal places of profit connected with her revenue lands to the Frenchmen attached to her household, a proceeding which her husband very properly opposed in the following dialogue, which took place after the royal pair had retired to rest. One night, wrote King Charles, after I was abed, my wife put a paper in my hand, telling me it was a list of those that she desired to be officers of her revenue. I took it and said that I would read it next morning, but withal I told her that by agreement in France I had the naming of them. She said there were both English and French in the note. I replied that those English which I thought fit to serve her I would confirm, but for the French, it was impossible for them to serve her in that capacity. She said, all those in that paper had breviates from her mother and herself, that she would admit no other. Then I said, it was neither in her mother's power nor hers to admit any without my leave, and if she relied on that, whomsoever she recommended should not come in. Then she plainly bade me, take my lands to myself, for if she had no power to put in whom she would, into those places, she would have neither lands nor houses of me, but bade me, give her what I thought fit by way of pension. I bade her, remember to whom she spoke, and told her she ought not to use me so. Then she fell into a passionate discourse, how she is miserable, in having no power to place servants, and that business succeeded the worse for her recommendation." When I offered to answer, she would not so much as hear me, but went on lamenting, saying, that she was not of such base quality as to be used so. But, continues Charles, I both made her hear me and end that discourse. A stormy scene at court occurred soon after this royal curtain lecture. The Bishop of Monte, a young ecclesiastic at the head of Henrietta's Catholic establishment, actually contested publicly with the Earl of Holland, late Lord Kensington, which of them was to act as steward of her dowry. The bishop showed the queen's warrant, and the earl that of the king. Marie de Medicis, with her usual want of judgment, has appointed as her daughter's almoner, a youth of twenty years, who had been advanced to a bishopric, on account of his family connection with Richelieu. It is certain that all the suavity and experience in human nature, ever possessed by the wisest bishop of the ancient church, were required to guide an ecclesiastic in the difficult position in which the head of the queen's band of unwillingly tolerated priests must have found himself. Lord Holland is the same person as Lord Kensington, who negotiated the queen's marriage. There is no very great manifestation of her partiality to him, although her name has been linked with his in the malicious histories of the times. 
The origin of these reports seems to have been the praises he bestowed on her in his letters to the court at the time of her marriage, but after she was queen, this nobleman showed all the indications of a disappointed courtier. The king's discontent at the conduct of the French colony established within his gates reached its climax in June 1626, before he had been married a twelvemonth. As his wrath ever vests on a very small provocation, or none at all, it is natural to suppose that the quarrel was rather a forced one on his part. Monday last, about three in the afternoon, the king passing into the queen's side, that is the queen's suite of apartments at Whitehall, and finding some Frenchmen, her servants, unreverently curvetting and dancing in her presence, took her by the hand and led her into his lodgings or apartments, locking the door after him and shutting out all, save the queen. Presently, Lord Conway signified to her majesty's French servants that young and old, they must all depart thence to Somerset House and remain there till they knew his majesty's pleasure. The women howled and lamented as if they were going to execution, but all in vain. For the guard, according to Lord Conway's orders, thrust them all out of the queen's apartments and locked the doors after them. While this scene was transacting in her own apartments, the queen, who was detained by the king in his chamber, became very angry, and when she understood that her French train were being expelled from Whitehall, she flew into an access of rage. She endeavored to bid them a passionate farewell from the window, whence the king drew her away, telling her, to be satisfied, for it must be so. However, the queen continued to break the windows with her fist, as she was prevented from opening them. Charles was obligated to use all his masculine strength to control his incensed partner by grasping her wrists in each hand. But since, adds the newsletter, I hear her rage is appeased, and that the king and she went to none such, and have been very jocund together. The French servants of Henrietta were kept at Somerset House, while the king detained their royal mistress at his country palaces. A few days after he had separated them from the queen, he came in person to Somerset House, attended by Buckingham, Holland, and Carlisle, and addressed the French household in a set speech, informing them of the necessity of dismissing them to their own country. The young bishop requested to know his fault, and Madame de St. George passionately appealed to the queen. I name none, replied Charles, and then peremptorily ordering their return to France, and promising that they should receive their wages with gratuities to the amount of twenty-two thousand pounds, he withdrew with his attendants. The French retinue, by various pretenses, delayed their departure from day to day, throughout the whole of the month of July. They retained possession of the queen's clothes and jewels as perquisites, and actually left her without a change of linen, and with difficulty were prevailed on to surrender an old satin gown for her immediate use. They brought her in immensely in debt to them for purchases, which she, notwithstanding her partiality in their favor, allowed to the king, were wholly fictitious. At last Charles, exasperated by their struggles to remain in England, wrote to Buckingham the following letter to expedite their expulsion. Steeny, I have received your letter by Dick Grime. This is my answer. I command you to send all the French away tomorrow out of the town, if you can by fair means, but stick not long in disputing, otherwise force them away, driving them away like so many wild beasts, until you have shipped them, and so the devil go with them. Let me hear of no answer but of the performance of my command. 
So I rest your faithful, constant, loving friend, C.R. Oaking, on the 7th of August, 1626. Although a numerous collection of coaches, carts, and barges were waiting the next day at Somerset House, the French retinue unanimously resolved not to depart, saying, They had not been discharged with the proper punctilios, on which the king sent a large posse of heralds, trumpeters, and a strong body of yeomen, the heralds and trumpeters having formally proclaimed his majesty's pleasure at the gates of Somerset House, the yeomen then stepped forward to execute his majesty's orders, which were no other than that, if the French still continued refractory, to thrust them out head and shoulders. This extremity was not resorted to, for the French departed the same tide. A great mob had been gathered in the strand by these proceedings, and withal most riotously disposed, as the beautiful Madame de St. George was departing, gesticulating with the utmost vivacity, and pouring forth a torrent of eloquence on the atrocity of tearing her from her queen, one of the leaders of the mob threw a large stone at her head, which knocked off her cap. An English noble of the court, who was leading the aggrieved fair one to the barge, drew his sword, and ran the man through the body on the spot. Certainly a person who could assault a woman thus murderously deserved little sympathy, but surely the people of all classes, in the last century but one, had little reason to consider themselves as civilized beings. The only French attendants left with the queen were her nurse, her dresser, and Madame de la Tremouille. The king sent his orders to the housekeeper at St. James's to prepare suitable apartments for the residence of the latter lady. The official returned answer, that her majesty's French retinue has so defiled that palace that it would be long before it could be purified. The metropolis was in an infected state with the plague, and the royal family made a progress that autumn in search of salubrious springs, perhaps in imitation of the fashion of the continent, where it had become the custom to frequent watering places and spas. The king and queen came to Wellingborough this year, for the benefit of drinking at the Red Well there, and actually resided some days in tents, that they might drink the waters at the fountain head. The whole summer the young queen was restless and unhappy. She attributed her troubles, perhaps unjustly, to the malign influence of Buckingham. She wrote perpetually home, stating how wretched she was, deprived of her French household, and talked of visiting her native country. The resident ambassadors, Tillerier and Blainville, who appear to have been the most formal fools ever sent on missions of delicate diplomacy, fomented her griefs. At last, the Queen Mother of France appointed a man of sense and spirit to mediate this matrimonial difference. The Duc de Bassompierre, one of the old friends and fellow soldiers of Henry IV, was sent to England to inquire into the wrongs of Henrietta, and hear from her own lips a recapitulation of her injuries, which her banished household had represented to her mother as most flagrant. One outrage was offered to King Charles, which was, no doubt, to be attributed to the incorrigible folly of Marie de Medicis. Father Sansi, whose fanaticism had caused him to be dismissed from Henrietta's train on her first arrival in England, was now thrust back to this country as the chaplain to the embassy, as if no one could be found to perform such an office, but a person who had made himself personally odious to Charles and his people. Before Bassompierre entered into any other discussion, there was a lengthy controversy regarding this obnoxious person. Charles insisted that he should be sent out of his dominions before he would discuss any point with the French ambassador, 
nevertheless, Sansi remained and did his best to embroil the king and queen irreconcilably. But Saint-Pierre was certainly the most sensible and honorable person that France had sent to England since the embassy of the great Duke de Sully. His notation of his interviews with the young queen proved that he neither flattered nor spoiled her. He found her at open hostility with her husband's favorite and prime minister, Buckingham, of whom she made the most bitter complaints. They had quarreled violently, and perhaps their enmity was aggravated by the fact that the queen knew no English, and Buckingham very little French. No doubt their angry dialogues were amusing enough. Buckingham, nevertheless, made the queen understand a speech which she never forgave. She quoted it, long years after his death, in confidence to Madame de Montville. He insolently told her, to beware how she behaved, for in England, queens had their heads cut off before now. Henrietta averred that Buckingham, jealous lest she should possess influence with the king, made mischief perpetually between them, and was the cause of all the unhappiness of the early days of her married life. But Saint-Pierre found this feud between the young queen and the favorite of Charles I at its very height. Although four months had passed since her separation from her French retinue, the mind of the queen was in so great a state of excitement regarding it that Charles I, just before he gave the audience of reception to Bassompierre at Hampton Court, sent Buckingham to him to direct that nothing relative to this subject might be mentioned or alluded to at the public interview. For I cannot, said King Charles, help putting myself in a passion when discussing these matters, which would not be decent in the chair of state, in sight of the chief persons of the realm, likewise the queen my wife, seated close to me, grieved at the remembrance of the dismissal of her servants, might commit some extravagance, and would at least cry in the sight of every one. But Saint-Pierre, when he found this representation was no diplomatic ruse of Buckingham, concerted with him a plan to defer the discussions of the grievance till he had a private audience with the queen in London. The Duke of Buckingham pursues Bassompierre, then introduced me to the audience. I found the king and queen seated on two chairs raised on a stage of two steps. They rose at the first bow I made. The company was magnificent and the order exquisite. After answering inquiries regarding the health of the queen's brother and mother, Bassompierre, as had been concerted previously, was told by the king that her majesty was impatient to inquire after them more particularly and to receive their remembrances and greetings in a private interview with him. Therefore, in consideration of her feelings, he would delay the communication of his state mission till after that conference had taken place. The queen then added a few words saying, that the king had given her leave to go to London, where she would see him and speak to him at leisure. But these words overcame her spirits. She rose and was obliged to retire with Madame de la Tremouille, or the tears which filled her eyes would have been seen to overflow her cheeks. Subsequently, the queen, the king, and Buckingham discussed their grievances severally in long private interviews with Bassompierre, a quotation or two from his journal gives a pretty clear view as to which side found most favor in his eyes. October 24th. I was with the queen when the king came in, with whom she picked a quarrel. The king took me to his chamber and talked a great deal to me, making me complaints of the queen, his wife. The next day, Sunday, was the time on which Bassompierre resolved to bring about the reconciliation he had prepared between the king and queen, and the queen and Buckingham. 
Then I went for the duke, whom I took to the queen, who made his peace with her, which I had brought about with infinite trouble. The king came in afterwards, and he also was reconciled to her. On account, it may be supposed, of the quarrel the fair tyrant had picked with his majesty the day before. Then, resumes the ambassador, the king caressed her very much. He thanked me, as he said, for reconciling the duke and his wife, then took me to his chamber and showed me his jewels, which are very fine. Her majesty, nevertheless, considered that her father's old friend had not evinced sufficient partiality to her cause, for the very next day, after dinner, he went to see the queen at Somerset House, and she fell out with him. The reconciliation which poor Bassompierre had effected, with such waste of time and eloquence, and so many journeys between Whitehall, Somerset House, and Hampton Court, was all null and void in a fortnight, and the parties were more angry with each other than ever. The cause of wrath was, that the king found that the temper of the times would not permit him to fulfill his engagement of granting his wife the indulgence of her domestic worship, so openly as the marriage contract specified. He had left her three chaplains when he expelled her French ecclesiastics, and he was reluctant to permit more. At sixteen, Henrietta was no judge of the state of her husband's affairs. It is not an age when the faculties which produce foresight are much developed in any class of human beings. Those who placed a petulant child in a situation that required all the calm temper and clear judgment of which a woman of twenty-five is capable, were responsible for the whole of the mistakes she committed as queen. Unfortunately, the effects of her childish errors in judgment weighed heavily against her in after life. Yet there was no moral wrong in the conduct of the young queen, her errors merely proceeded from a fervent attachment to her religion, manifested without wise calculation on the prejudices of her new country. Alas, in political history, crimes committed with tact are often viewed with complacency, but small mercy is shown to blunders, even if they may be traced to virtuous affections. It may be noticed, too, that false chronology has occasioned a very great deal of calumny on Henrietta. For instance, the crime more particularly charged against her was the fanatic penance she is said to have performed at Tyburn. This, if ever done, was limited within the first few weeks after her arrival. If it were, as she averred, a fabrication, it must have originated with her husband's most intimate friends and trusted counselors, perhaps with Buckingham himself, for a most notable quarrel broke out between the queen and him, while this matter was discussed in council before Bissampierre. This nobleman acted throughout with impartiality, unawed by the title of queen, borne by the petulant little beauty, who was the youngest child of his old friend, Henry the Fourth. He sharply reproved her for picking quarrels with her husband, and threatened to tell her friends in France of her perversity. With the same spirit of independence, he pointed out to his own government their errors in judgment in his letters to her ball, the French minister. You know, wrote he, the extraordinary manner in which the domestics of the Queen of Great Britain were sent back to France. It was said that she lived very ill with her husband, and that there seemed no way but open war to enforce the terms of the marriage treaty. At first I proved what I had expected, that the company of Father Sancy would do little good, and a very great deal of harm to my design. You have seen how much I have suffered, and been impeded on this head. You know the principal objects which my king had in sending me hither, were to render the queen his sister content, the state of her conscience easy, her personal attendance agreeable to her, 
her health and convenience, and the union and intelligence between her majesty and her royal husband, perfectly cemented, likewise to obtain better treatment for the English Catholic priests. End of section three.